You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Ellie Fox and I help connect digital leaders in the NHS with interim talent and today I am your host. If we can just start with uh, your introductions now. So Jeff, I'm going to go to you because you're top left. If you could just introduce yourself and tell us about your position at Princess Alexandra. Sure, I'm Geoffrey Wood, Deputy Director of ICT at Princess Alexandra Hospital NHS Trust. Excellent. And then if we can go to you, Bhargav. Uh, thank you, Ellie. Good afternoon all. I'm Bhargav Solanki. I'm the Assistant Director of IMNP for Actionable Intelligence at Barking, Haverhill and Redbridge Hospitals. So I've been in the role for um, about six months, but have been at the Trust for nearly three years now. And before that, I was at the Homerton for almost 11 years. So um, nice to meet you all. Thank you. Thank you. How well? Hi, everyone. Uh, likewise, nice to meet you all. Uh, uh, some familiar faces. <laughs> uh, Pavel Sajdak, Associate Director of IT Business Operations uh, here at EPUT, um, uh, Partnership University NHS Foundation Trust. Um, I joined NHS a couple of years ago um, after almost 10 years working um, as a technology specialist uh, for private sector organization, uh, specifically delivering um, public sector contracts, um, specifically within prison service and probation. Excellent, thank you. And last but not, not least, Nikki, if you could introduce yourself, please. Hi, yes, lovely to meet you all. Um, so I'm Nikki Carlon. I am a performance manager at West Hearts NHS Trust. Um, I transitioned to the NHS from the private sector about I think, over five years ago. Thank you. Right, so we'll get underway with the questions. Um, so I'm just going to go in the order of introductions just for easiness. Um, so Jeff, you've asked that we move from company cars to lease cars to use your own car and claim petrol. There is still quite a stigma around using your own mobile phone use in the NHS. We are looking at encouraging our employees to use their own mobile phones for a variety of applications, including our cloud telephony system in the trust. By general encouragement, using the ease and efficiency, this will give them to considering a stipend. What are your thoughts and plans on bring your own device? Could you give us a bit of a context to that, please? Yeah, sure. So um, I think sort of I've come across, I've come from private sector um, in the past as well, and then local authority. Uh, and I've been used to bringing my own device into work for a number and number of years. Um, within the NHS, there's some general rules about um, nurses in particular, not being allowed to have um, mobile phones on the um, wards, etc. And I think that sort of needs to change over time. Uh, there's the, the general opinion that nurses aren't allowed those because it looks like they are playing on their phones rather than actually looking up something specific to do with uh, the trust and looking up patient access records and things like that. So we've been toying with the idea of moving more to mobile phones and also it gives us a lot of resiliency. So because we're cloud telephony, if the network goes down, the whole lot goes down. Um, so uh, mobile phones becomes a bit of a resiliency for us as well. Uh, and we've been looking at um, whether we just keep encouraging people to use these devices and all of the applications that make their job easier, 
or whether we think about giving them a, um, a two, four pound or, or whatever monthly payment to allow them to increase their own telephony um, contracts to include unlimited calls and 10 gig of uh, data and things like that. So it's it's sort of around that sort of area that I'm thinking Mm, it's a tough one. Um, NHS is fairly new still for me. It's three years, so I'm still trying to work my way through the uh, nuances. And I just thought it was a good opportunity to to ask that question here. Thank you. And then if we go to you, Powell, you've got your hand raised. Yes, uh, that, that's a definitely interesting one, Jeff. Um, here, our team, but we, we sort of a little bit flipped. So we actually have got a big workforce with uh, with a lot of. Uh, Trust mobile devices and some uh, staff using uh, also contributing towards their own costs to to be able to lab, to to use uh, trust mobile device for 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 uh, personal uh, uh, purposes. The, the the bit that um, really sort of always sticks when it comes to 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 uh, BYOD is is that approach to privacy. And I really like how you sort of positioned the the question around the the the, the company cars to to private cars use um, and. I think if, if if one was to succeed in um, completely enabling nurses to 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 have those uh, devices um, uh, on on wards on wards and and um, in their in the work context is to really consider how it enables care and 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 how app based for example uh, in, um, in, uh, collaboration um, in, in care could really sort of kind of take it to the next level. Otherwise, it will always be that, well, I don't feel like this is the right thing to do and a, 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 a position for, of, of individuals. Um, so um, the, the privacy was really some kind of that, 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 that big question mark. Um, but then could you take it that way, um, uh, the opposite way? So, so looking at your, your context um, and um, could you have secure way of delivering patient care through personal devices? And I suppose that's that's sort of kind of the, the big, big technical challenge of, of digital transformation of of making the um, that segregation between devices and 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 uh, and, and environments. And then the the, the, the wider sort of kind of health well being. I'm just not going to go into that because I'm sure others want to want to come in on that <laughs> and work life balance. Thank you, Bargav. You've got your hand raised. Yeah, thank you, Ellie. So just okay, on yeah, reflection yeah, of yeah. what um, I think Pavel has said and in line with Jeff's questions, I think it's an interesting topic, but <clears throat> what I'd like to say is that there's a couple of things um, I think obviously to bear in mind in terms of what it is that we're trying to achieve. So the level of care, so how does it impact care? How does it impact, you know, what are the benefits of delivering that care? Um, costs associated to that. Um, any risks associated to it, the IT policy, etc. So I think internally we do have a BYOD policy, but I think there's several factors to that on how users can then use their own devices. So like keeping in um, sort of updated with the security patches, the antivirus, I think it, it brings in its own kind of maintenance and management um from both users as well as the IT department perspective um as opposed to if there's something such as um, an observations app that need that's kind of being proposed to use for the medical team then it may be pertinent to explore like apple ipods or something you know which is something um we use so like vital pack is, is an observations app 
and we provide iPods to nurses and clinical staff so you know they can record observations on the go and things like that and obviously solely managed by IT and obviously on a, on a need case by case basis so again potentially something that could be explored from your perspective um, again there are organizations who have been supporting um, users on you know using their own devices with some form of um, kind of top-ups on you know their kind of contracts or providing them with a dedicated contract as such but again depends on patient care benefits risks and kind of delivery and outcomes that you want to achieve so thank you thank you Paul have you got something to add well, uh, nice to hear uh, Bogav mention iPods because that's something that we want to explore with our domestic staff and effectively um, um, uh, introduce a lower cost device that perhaps justifies the, the that, that shift because that's the, it's all about critical mass, right? I mean, with the transformation and, and, and change, if you've defined the purpose, then there's no need for you to convince anyone. Everyone sort of kind of follows you through, but um, it's sometimes difficult to perhaps, you know, justify the cost and iPods is something that we, we were looking at, at trialing with uh, domestic staff as, as a way of accessing trust information and and, and, and uh, systems. But I, I, I would want to say, Jeff, I mean, I'm, I'm really uh, intrigued how, how security considerations, particularly access to sensitive data, would be uh, taken into account in a flipped scenario, the one that you 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 be presenting, maybe this is some kind of like a roadmap to 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 get there, similar to to the um, uh, uh, lease car, company car, and uh, personal car scenario that is going to be brought in. Thank you, Nikki. Do you have anything to add on to any other points made? Um, not so much in using the mobile device. Um, to access or patient records or apps, but maybe just to use mobile devices in general. There's still a stigmatism around having a work phone which is separate to a personal phone. Um, so I know in the past I've um, used my work phone for uh, my personal phone for calls, and um, you know the colleagues have felt that it was inappropriate because it's a personal phone, and they personally feel that they should be two separate things. Um, so it, I suppose it, you could look at some quick wins, maybe look at different um, sort of uh, staff categories where you could get some quick wins to where they're not using the phone for as much sort of PID data access. Um, to try and change the culture and the way that mobile phones are used. Thank you. And Jeff, you've got your hand raised. Yeah, I was just going to um, feedback some some information to some of the things that people have, have raised, really. So the security, yeah, absolutely. And and mobile device management tools now are, are far better than they ever were. So we tend to sandpit areas uh, on mobile devices anyway. Uh, and of course, having that remote white facility for those, you have to get that agreement prior to them using that. So we've we've gone through that in a little bit of detail in terms of iPods, because I think we're trying to pick up some of the resilience as well. So obviously, if our cloud telephony goes down, there is not only if, if the network goes down, not only can we not connect people with their PCs and things, but also we'll have no communications. So, um, and as we all know, the wireless um, in the hospitals isn't too bad, but the 4G, you might as well, yeah, turn it off. Um, so, so again, as part of that, we'd have to increase our 4G and 5G throughout the whole trust. Uh, and we're moving away from pages and bleeps as well. So that will all be on mobile devices, whether it's iPads, iPods or iPhones. 
Um, so we have that to sort of build in and we're also doing some work with HoloLens. So again, to reduce the amount of people that wander around different wards, um, you would just have one um, clinical um, person with a, a HoloLens on and then others can look at it from their own device. Again, you know, if we're supplying iPads and and that throughout the whole trust, it gets really, really expensive. So that's why the, the choice of most people have got a really good smartphone better than we'd be able to give them. Um, so so why not allow them to have that facility? And we know that there'll be a good take up of those people, but it's just encouraging others as well to try and keep costs down and 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 budget somewhere else to get you know, better PCs or or, or more HoloLens devices or, or something else that can really make that impact. So that's where we were sort of thinking and coming from. But it's been useful to to pick up your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. And then, Bhargav, if we go to you, has anyone got anyone else anything else to add on that on that question? Yep. Go on, Powell. <laughs> Just one quick thing, I think perhaps that's resilience around mobile uh, um, a device uh, and the cloud telephony is perhaps a good stepping stone of perhaps nothing else other than um, your, uh, your mobile phone number being masked by the cloud telephony solution, being that stepping stone of actually being able to do away with people's work mobile numbers as a as a first step of, of, of moving to, in, into that direction. Uh, that's just, just a final thought. Thank you. So Bhargav, you've asked, have organisations established a roadmap of maturing their analytics capability? This is to improve better visibility around planned and unplanned care pathways, key points for consideration and discussion, governance around assessing as is position and to be scope, and what visualisation tools are being considered, i.e. Click, Power BI, Tableau or a hybrid model? Can you just give us a bit of context to that, please? Yeah, sure, Ellie. Thank you. Um, so the context is again following from the pandemic, as organisations have had a setback in terms of various um, improvement initiatives, so starting from digital transformation to you know modernising and improving the analytics capabilities. Um, so over the last eighteen months, obviously, um, there's been a setback in improving the plan and plan care services and it, it has affected trust in a number of different ways um, but again moving on or obviously coming out of that in some ways um, keen to know how other organizations are looking at improving or maturing their capabilities so um, a it's kind of to improve local capabilities and then b is moving in direction of um, ics you know how are the acute partners or community partners then reviewing their capabilities in order to harmonize reporting. So obviously, if organizations are exploring at um, cloud features such as available in ClickSense or even if it's Power BI, um, then how is it that they can pull their resources, harmonize reporting, review the as-is position, you know, agree something that's common to all. And obviously, there'll be an element of difference, but if they can Certainly, there will be common themes um, that people can look at in terms of strength weaknesses. So I think this this is about um, kind of local partnerships um, as well as local improvements. So I think that's that's the context. So keen to hear everyone's thoughts on that. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jeff. Have you got anything to say on that one? Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, we're we're using Click 
view click sense i think at the moment um so um it's something that we're constantly pushing to get more and more of our um data um into a, a readable format that we can then surface in in click sense so that you know it's easy on dashboards and things like that so i know exactly where you're coming from i think again you know stepping from into the nhs from outside and it does feel like i've gone back a little bit in time it's very difficult not um to to look at some of those things that we used to use like gis you know for geolocation stuff that's something particularly that we're not very good of in the nhs we we can't sort of i was just trying to get a general view not long ago about um what our harlow stats were for uh, internet usage and people with um uh, digital um training and things like that i couldn't get that information from anywhere other than the um 2010 census which is like just was not used much use at all so so i completely agree you know with with where you're coming from we just our plans just aren't mature enough in that area and i think until we all start sharing data more and get some more proper population health data between the ics between the trusts that we all build, um join up to and between our uh, local authorities as well when we can start getting social data and stuff to to mix in with that it's going to be really difficult and i think we all are off, going off in different directions unfortunately so i think it's a, a worthwhile one to bring up thank you jeff powell you've got your hand raised if you want to go yeah th thanks jeff uh, i think i think you guys nailed it on the head it is about maturing um mm. and and i think key role for um for the trust for interest organizations in in a given area is the um is, is the ics's role um to to really either lead or encourage growth uh, and because otherwise there's, there's that great risk and we're already seeing some of this particularly in a, in the data lakes approach and um uh, in, in this area where we all go in a slightly different direction now I'm, I'm not too worried about it because at least we we gathering the data but um the, the visualization is kind of almost secondary but again are we trying to measure what matters or are we just gathering data because we can and and that's the bit that sort of, kind of starts to 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 worry me uh, particularly so far as i came here uh to 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 our trust um to, to help transform the um, the operations and uh starting with uh, uh with really frontline services it, it's really difficult to sometimes find the right information in the in the noise that is the the, the amount of data that we're perhaps collecting about services that we're providing but i think in in principle it's it's the is that maturing piece that still has to happen um across individual organizations and orchestrated uh, by ics i think that's the word i use program isn't it thank you jeff you put your hand up next if you want to go yeah i was just going to follow up on what um Barrow was saying about the data lakes you're absolutely right and i think the problem is that we're talking a lot about um predictive analytics now rather than prescriptive analytics and we really should be going that one step further again again it, there's a lot of maturing to do in that area and I think there's so much data we're not really even when we surface it in nice little pretty graphs and, and pictures to make it easy for people to see they're not really thinking about what it means and, and what it could do for them so that's where I think we should move more into the prescriptive analytics uh, where we can actually get actionable data out of it that we know what to do with. Thank you Bhargav if you want to go next. 
Yeah, thank you, Alice. I think really interesting and good points from colleagues. Um, really useful to know. Um, I think the way um, we are trying to explore things is looking at it from an individual process map perspective. So even from a digital transformation piece, if you're looking to improve or make something better, obviously you, you, you can't improve what you can't measure. So the, the first thing is assessing and process mapping what your key elements are and, and then trying to review okay well what's the as is what is it that we want and how is it that we want the to be position to look like and then i think providing a set of governance around it obviously getting stakeholders to agree that scope which is kind of sometimes challenging because people then not necessarily understand it from their perspective where they kind of stand in their position so again that that becomes more around you know the data literacy um you know the knowledge mining you know, how, how do you then get users to understand how the data um, plays a part from, from an economical perspective, perhaps, you know, um, cost reduction, patient pathway improvement, uh, and then finally implementing it within the business. Uh, and, and then when it comes to business implementation, again, as, as Jeffrey said about prescriptive and predictive, I think there's, there's several ways to look at this, but I think a step-by-step -step process would be useful so you know how you're going to sustain you then improve and then transform uh, and then again each of those steps would then include a, a way of getting descriptive analysis kind of right and spot on so you can understand trends better then move on to the predictive bits what is it that you can make from the predictions local population kind of predictions gla etc and then the prescriptive side so i think um perhaps that could be one of the ways to look at it as well, which is something we're exploring. So thank you, but really useful thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. And then Nikki, you've got your hand raised. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that we are at West Hearts, we're on our EPR journey. So um, we're still at, on, at the earlier stages, I suppose, of digital maturity. And we're looking, we're going to be looking at how much more data goes into test results, clinical notes, and we're going to see how we can leverage that information. Because at the minute we are very reactive to the information that comes through rather than predictive. Um, so we are we are sort of at the early stages of that maturity model. Um, but in the long term, horizon scanning, you know, it would be great if we can predict what sort of cohort will be coming into A and E. I mean, during the COVID pandemic, I know some regions saw a high increase in alcohol related admissions i mean if we could see if we had that predictive ability then that's something we could preempt and plan for um but again for myself and my trust we are still at the early stages and again i agree with what powell said about the sort of ics level and how we do share that information because obviously the, that sort of information is fed in real time to other bodies but it's not shared um, so yeah, and um, just touching on what tools that we use, I mean, we use Tableau, um, SPS, uh, SPC charts um, at the moment, but again, you know, with the amount of data that may be coming through once we do have an EPR um, live implemented, then we could look at other options. Thanks, Nikki. Howell, do you want to go? Well, uh, Nick, you mentioned APR uh, um, systems, and and I just had a quick had a quick scan around the uh, um, a table, um, a virtual table, and I just realised you guys all represent hospital also um, group of hospitals, and I'm assuming you guys got to contend only with one EPR system. 
<laughs> right? Isn't that a comfortable place to be in? Uh, we 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 passed five. I won't go any uh, uh, any further than that because it will just uh, um, wouldn't be fair. But it's 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 then merging and 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 uh, um, kind of amalgamating the data to to provide some meaningful reports is the real big challenge of of, of my colleagues in the. Um, Reporting teams um, and and yes, yeah, so to answer your your question around the tool sets, um, Tableau and uh, um, SSRS tools are very common from from what I'm seeing from as a as a um, uh, uh, operations uh, work stream so within within our service. But I, there's definitely big appetite for taking advantage of NHS Mail's offering and the Power BI tools that naturally come with them. So we're really keen to explore that. Thank you. Has anyone else got anything to add before we move on to the next question? No? Excellent. Um, so if we head over to you, Nikki, um, as we emerge into a new norm, how do we win the hearts and minds of our partners and staff to continue embracing the virtual methods of working embraced over the pandemic? You want to give us some context? Oh, okay, thank you. Um, so over the pandemic, I think we we're all firefighting and perhaps um, groups of staff who were perhaps digitally adverse, um, you know, really took it on board. I'll give an, an example, be, you know, how, how GPs um, started to do the virtual consultations, how they took that up quite quickly during the pandemic. Um, but I also received lots of feedback um, that many GPs defaulted back to the telephone um, rather than using the actual video consultation platform. Um, and, you know, as we do come into a new norm that COVID is going to be with us, you know, for, for a long time, um, how do we ensure that we ca carry on embracing or carry on with the momentum that COVID gave? to the uptake of digital transformation and using digital tools. Thank you, Powell, we'll go over to you. Thank you. Uh, I, I don't know who said this, but this, this, uh, um, this relatively well-known statement around um, uh, the reasons why somebody doesn't want to do so, doesn't do something that's expected of them is either they don't want to or they don't know how. And um, so kind of to break down your question in, in, in this context, as ex-educator -ed as well myself, so um, if they don't know how, there's your answer, so there's, there's a piece of working out how do we how do we bridge that gap of, of understanding and knowledge and, and uh, digital poverty is, is very sort of kind of on topic uh, aspect of, of care at the moment and something that we've um, launched during pandemic. Uh, within our trust specifically is um, a lending library for, for, for patients that perhaps particularly so as a mental health trust primarily, um, you know, might struggle to take part in in, in the virtual uh, um, uh, um, group sessions and, and, and activities or just just simple consultations. So, so there's a few things that we were exploring. We also uh, um, uh, were working with um, Essex County Council on um, on their trial of um, care funds, which is specifically for for more elderly uh, population, and 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 that was quite interesting uh, um, model as well. So um, the, the don't know how kind of thing is is covered by either some kind of education or actually um, enabling people through 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 the access to uh, to technology. The, the the harder question is is around those that don't want to, and and really to understand why. It takes a lot of effort, and it's not one size fit all. And and uh, again, 
perhaps just putting on my educator's hat again, there will be reasons why GPs will say that they will prefer phone consultations over, over video consultations. And the reasons that you're given not always the fully understood reasons that uh, that actually are happening underneath the surface. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a discovery piece, I think, so if, if, if nothing else, Nikki, uh, from my point of view, at least, to understand the, 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 the true reasons why 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 the the um uh, the new norm doesn't happen naturally in, in in those areas that's my that's my take on it thank you powell uh Bargav, have you got anything to add on to that yeah thanks i think on on reflection and what um Pavel just said in response to nikki's question so i think there's there's a couple of things so both from a staff and patients perspective so particularly patients and how gps have kind of started dealing with virtual appointments it, it has to be based on some form of patient feedback and and benefits realization and obviously there has to be some governance around it so you know as acute trusts get monitored on the percentage of virtual appointments they have including video consultations you know i believe there should be some form of regulatory kpis for gps as well so again if there's some form of reticence around using technology and as Pavel said, you know, um, digital poverty, how, how is it that we can collectively improve and, and even make some of the, the colleagues within primary care realize the benefits? Um, so it's about socializing more and more, passing on the message, communication, um, regulatory evidence, as well as patient feedback. I think that that would be key. Um, from, from a staffing perspective, I think, again, um, there's a number of ways and, and staff have really, you know, um, taken on agile working. So obviously, um, as long as there is some form of policy around agile working and often so that people don't mix agile working versus flexible working, um, obviously provision of devices, you know, security and, and, and those sort of things. Um, I think obviously there's an element around staffing that could be addressed in, in a similar way. Thank, Thank you, you. Bhargav. Uh, Jeff, have you got anything to say? Yeah, so I think um, I think it's a good point. And, and I know we've sort of looked at, you know, video consultations as one aspect and the fact that that sort of went backwards, but a lot of things haven't gone backwards. A lot of things are carried on progressing. And I think that's the bit we need to sort of focus on. I think IT previous to COVID were quite hampered in what we could do and what we couldn't do. Our, our funding wasn't great. Uh, and then all of a sudden the doors were opened and we put all this great kit in and we got it in quick um and people were able to use it and i think we need to capitalize that on that and carry on capitalizing on that i agree with you about clinicians um when you think that you know the medical um the way the clinicians work um they've probably been doing the same thing in the same way for goodness knows how many years i mean a stethoscope has been around for years and yet they still use them you know there's nothing better that come out whereas we come out with something new almost on a, a weekly basis in the technology uh, sphere so we have to keep pushing that to them and also remembering that um a lot of what we put in doesn't really give them as many improvements in their day-to-day -day work as what it does for the trust so again you know the more that we make things accessible digitize them etc instead of them being able to quickly write something down uh, they now have to learn to type and it takes them probably three times as long as it would have done previous brilliant for us they've got records available brilliant for them in the long run but is all they're seeing is that short-term pain 
rather than the long-term gain. So I think putting in some stuff for them that really makes a difference now, you know, as we go along, simple things like single sign-on, you know, trying to bring bring those sort of things in that will save them time, we'll probably be able to carry them more into the future uh, with some of the other bits that we do want to bring in. So I think, yes, yeah, it's, it's a tough ask for all of us in IT at the moment. Uh, and uh, we're just going to have to make things as intuitive, as easy as possible and full training. So I think Paolo said that is, you know, the training is a major thing for our clinicians. We can't underestimate the time it takes. We put in a new telephony system and we thought to ourselves, it's not hard, telephones are not much difference, but it was as far as they were concerned. Uh, it was just basic stuff like do not disturb and things that we take for granted and they get confused about and forget to take do not disturb off. Simple things, but we need to train and really understand and then retrain. Know, almost every year it's reminders on a, a regular basis. Thank you Jeff. Nikki have you got anything that you want to add to any of them points or go back to? Yeah they're, they're very good points and thank you and I do take on board um, Bhargav's um, point about getting national sort of re nationally recognised evidence of the benefits um, and I did trial a, a few um, smaller projects over the pandemic um, in A&E <laughs> and um, yeah and uh, so I think I've taken a lot of learning from that um, and yeah I think you've, you've hit a, a good you know some good points there but I think the communication is key as well and how, if our clinicians aren't embracing the technology fully the patients will pick up on that um, so I think perhaps targeting clinicians a little bit more just like Jeffrey mentioned to make sure that they have some sort of benefits and it's more easier for them like single sign-on so we didn't have single sign-on and clinicians found that quite onerous to log in and then log into another system <laughs> to then make a virtual call um so yeah really good points thank you thanks nikki bargav if we want to go back to you just one final point to make please um so what, what might be useful and again that's only a suggestion is um be useful to uh, so part of digital literacy um be useful to have digital days where you know you could almost have like a, a small counter with um you know the, the key teams available there so you know from the systems team digital transformation informatics bi etc um but what we'd have to ask people to bring along with is, is a piece of paper that they use at the moment um and, and then obviously place it in each of those buckets to say well okay this is the kind of quantum of piece of paper that you're, you're using on one hand, you'll get to know the as is, and then on the other hand, that gives us the thought process behind it to say, well, how can we digitalize all of this? Because obviously, um, you know, the, the cost of usage of paper is quite significant in some of the organizations. Um, so again, that, that might be a potential way forward as well. Thank you. Thank you, Bhargav. Jeff, have you got something to add? Yeah, I think um, Bhargav is right. You know, we we have tech bars in our canteen every Tuesday morning and Thursday morning to, to do those sort of things uh, and people bring their problems and stuff like that. But I think um, I don't know if anyone else here, I, I was um, started IT before, um, well, a long time ago, before keyboards were really, we used to use punch cards in my day, but um, I had to relearn to do uh, touch typing and even now, I still occasionally go back to my one finger for typing because it's faster. And we have to remember that with our um, clinicians as well. If 
if there's a faster method for them to use rather than whatever it is piece of technology we'll put in you can guarantee that they will fall back to that each time so it's really important that we we get to grips with that training and and show them the benefits that the bargev was was saying about you know the speed and stuff like that that is the key thing to get them up to that speed thank you Powell, have you got something to add uh, just a really quick point because I, I, I appreciate that we're almost moving into my questions as well. Uh, but uh, Jeff, you said you said it, you said it yourself uh, already, um, and, and there's no point of us um, uh, demonstrating the benefit for the trust or, or even NHS itself. It really translating those benefits onto the individuals involved to see how, uh, and I'm just thinking of how the savings of X amount of money by making certain process more efficient, although a bit more painful today, could bring some more people on on the front line and, and so translating that onto people's individual needs is quite powerful um, so i really like that point that you made there earlier jeff thank you has anyone got anything else to add before we go on to the next question no excellent um okay finally so you asked two questions didn't you we might get time to talk about them both we'll see we're cutting it fine but we'll see um so the first one was what do you consider to be the good, the bad and the ugly of COVID-19 impact on the digital transformation in the NHS? So if you want to give us a bit of context. Right, uh, I really should be, uh, uh, should, should have my quotes ready with, with some reference stuff we actually said, it, but I'm sure most of you have heard that uh, a statement early on in COVID that, uh, that within the first five months of uh, uh, COVID, uh, NHS has um, uh, uh, taken a uh, five years uh, leap of, of transformation thanks, thanks to so for, uh, the, the necessity. But we like with any transformation, any change, it, there's a reason why it has to happen at a certain pace. So um, we, we sometimes look at the benefits of uh, intuitiveness of, of teams and just being able to, to do this. But I'm just wondering what everyone's thoughts are of the maybe technical debt that some of this uh, rapid change has brought, but also um, are there some kind of cultural impact that might not say be that visible? Obviously, the positives, absolutely. I'm quite curious what, what you would see, would consider to be the, the key goods, uh, good ones uh, that you, you've seen, um, you know, following COVID. But I'm wondering if if any thoughts was given to to, to the other, the, the, the bad and, and ugly. So, yeah, over to you guys. Thank you, Jeff, if you want to go. Yeah, sure. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, they always say that most advances in civilization come during wars, and it's very true. And for us, the NHS, that was a wartime for us. We were on a war footing with COVID and it gave us a lot of um, additional funding that we didn't have and allowed technology to 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 go at a pace that that was really, really quick. But actually, most of that stuff we were probably prepared to do anyway. It's just that we couldn't do it in such a short space of time previously. So I think that was a really good thing for us. I think the, the, the transformation to agility as well certainly helps. We were, I think it's about a thousand pound per square meter for clinical space and something like a hundred pounds if you were to move to an office. So, um, you know, by moving all of us admin people out of clinical areas and into a completely separate office space, um, even off site or working from home, uh, has made some big savings for, for our individual trusts or should make some big savings for our individual trusts. So that that was a good thing. I think um, I think 
yeah, there were some bad points. So I, I agree. We bought loads of uh, new laptops. Um, you know, I was always intending we were about 85% desktop and the rest laptop. We're now probably about um, 60, 65% laptop in our trust and still going strong. Uh, and we've got some iPads as well. And again, you know, coming from a private sector, it was it was amazing that we're still running with CapEx. Uh, and then you have to sort of beg, borrow and steal. Um, we had 65% of our uh, PC estate was over seven years old when I joined. Um, and, and I knew that whatever I get now um, in five years time, I'd have to beg for that money again somewhere or, or find some central funding. So I slightly cheated and all of our iPads now that we procure are on lease. Um, of course, it's quite easy for um, um, people to turn around and say, yes, you're not updating that. It's really difficult for people to turn around and say, oh, the lease is run out. We're taking that away. They'll find the money for the lease more than they would for a capital injection to upgrade. Uh, and we're about to do the same for our um, PC estate as well, looking at device as a service um, or leasing arrangements. So, yeah, absolutely agree. And I, I'm already sort of thinking about some of the other problems that might occur uh, due, due to the period that we went through. I think one of the, our biggest problems at the moment, again, is we're used to at the beginning of a financial year um, and the end of the last financial year to be so busy as we try and clear off everything. Um, however, during COVID, we were working at pace and I actually haven't seen that stopping. Um, for me, the pace is still continuing. We're trying to recover from COVID or we're still going back into COVID. Um, and I, I still find that not just our frontline staff, but, but all the rest of the staff as well, specifically my ICT teams, are still working at incredible pace. Um, and it worries me that we won't see an end to that um and we'll start losing staff the, the same as we lose staff in the nursing um areas uh and or we'll have staff burning out uh, we've already seen some signs of it and and lots of us are putting in health and well-being but i think um it's going to be another big hit for the nhs uh if we don't do something for our it staff soon thank you jeff nikki have you got anything that you'd like to say um yeah, I mean, um, a really good point, Jeffrey, with the the IT staff. I know during the pandemic, um, it was all hands to the um, floor, and um, yeah, the IT staff do get overlooked. Um, I don't think there's been enough investment within IT. I don't think it's ever been really such a high priority. Um, and I think that we do, as individual trusts as well, we all need to really invest in not just EPRs, but the team of the future and upskilling the staff that we have got so that they do stay and they do develop and grow rather than leaving for the private sector. Um, on the positive note, um, one of the things I saw during the pandemic, which I thought was excellent, was the use of um, iPads for patients to be able to speak to um, relatives at home. And I hope that continues um, because, you know, even without COVID, we had patients who are bedbound who perhaps haven't got the means to buy that sort of equipment to have in hospital as well. And I think that that's something that we should really um, look to embed 
and not just for this period now, but I think that should be part of every trust agenda that we do provide patients with this capability going forward. And what it will also do is it will start changing the culture as well of using technology and iPads and mobile phones. Um, so I think that was something that, that was very good that came out of the pandemic. Um, at West Hearts, we sort of launched with the COVID-19 virtual hospital. I think we saw about 4,000 patients go through the virtual hospital that otherwise would have had to had an, an admission. Um, we're now looking at the pathways that we're, where we could utilise home remote monitoring. Um, so I think that's one of the really good sort of catapults of the COVID pandemic when it comes to the use of technology in addition to sort of virtual consultations is the fact that we do have technology out there that allows us to re remotely monitor patients. And then also rather than going to the default position of an A&E attendance, looking at new pathways for those patients. Thank you, Nikki. Bargas? Um, thanks, Ellie. So um, just a couple of things. So first of all, to begin with, in terms of the good, bad and the ugly of the COVID-19's impact. So I'd like to start with the bad things first, or let's, let me start in the reverse order. So starting with the ugly first, so the worst case scenario is how it's affected a, a lot of the digital programs. So um, again, whatever we had planned on the roadmap of um, improving our kind of digital footprint, again, it, it set us way too back on that. But again, um, on a positive note, it was more about embracing, well, okay, we are in the situation now, what is it that we can do quickly here and now? So it was the resilience that kind of, you know, got into people's heads and yeah, well, okay, yeah, we need to act now. So I think that that was the good thing um, about it on, on reflection. Um, I think one of the bad things was initially how various teams were almost um, felt disconnected because of the pandemic and due to social distancing, some of the um, digital staff from like non-clinical areas or admin clerical had to move away from the hospital. I think it was kind of keeping in touch with the stakeholders. So obviously that initially proved to be um, challenging in some form, but again, given how the IMNT team rolled out devices, you know, um, got everyone the right level of training, access, I think that was quite quickly mitigated, which was a really positive kind of uh, note and welcomed by a lot of clinicians. Um, from um, some of the successes that we've had, um, again, I'll speak from an analytical perspective, is we rolled out um, certain live dashboards. So again, a number of organizations would have done that. Um, and we um, established um, a COVID operational dashboard, you know, which gives them a good indication of the process and the outcome on how they would then make decisions of swapping wards, you know, wherever the infections, Start sickness, absence due to COVID, non-COVID, that sort of reasons. Again, looking at the A&E attendances live, um, you know, a number of different metrics. Um, again, from a digital transformation perspective, um, you know, we ramped up improvements on elective, non-elective care because I think, again, we all know in some ways it, it has affected delivery of those improvement programs. So, again, some of the successes on those areas. Um, but yeah, really, really good points from other colleagues as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so before we go on to the next question, has anyone got anything else to add? Well, I just want to reflect on on, on a colleague's uh, views. I think uh, I really like uh, Nikki's idea of, of investing in the team of the future. Yeah, absolutely right. That's you know 
we emerging from chaos, we've got to start working out where actually we are because we're not in the same place as we were uh, a year ago, two years ago. Um, uh, Jeff's points around the, the shift in, in, in the sort of makeup of the um, uh, of your of your estate is, is quite interesting and, and I definitely dread the uh, the long-term cost of, of handing out laptops to clinicians. I mean absolutely right thing to do at the time but if if uh, if we're used to you know shared desktop and 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 and, and balanced environment individual devices so it's, a, it's a shift uh, in a different direction and just considering what the, the total impact of, of, of such uh, su such a shift would be um, beyond even just you know device costs and stuff like that um, and yeah the, 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 the one thing that definitely um, and just just from what you guys were saying yourself you realize that uh, yourselves that um, one thing that was quickly overlooked although individuals productivity might have even might have increased because of working from home arrangements for example the impact on collaboration particularly in teams like uh, service desks and contact centers where it's all about you know sort of working together and and and, and solving smaller problems but continuously um, it is um, and, and sort of going growing the, the residual knowledge with, with, with individuals is 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 quite quite lost at the moment until we get get to the point where where we've got a clearer plan on 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 the future for those teams so yeah just that thank you um so if we really quickly just go to the last question uh what do you consider to be the universal hallmarks of the most successful changes you've witnessed or implemented do you want to give us a bit of context right so so this yeah this was the other question just in case my my uh, one of those questions was similar to what you guys already um uh, thought thought of um so we've seen a lot of good change and 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 uh, I, undoubtedly you know so uh, think, thanks to covid but obviously all of us are working in the trans in, in, in a context of transforming organizations and then making organizations better business um so i'm just curious on reflection of rushed changes uh, agile changes changes planned uh, um, uh, changes what would you say would be the the um, the key yeah um, points or key um, hallmarks I, could, I probably couldn't think of any, any different way of putting it through um, of successful change thank you Nikki do you want to go first I think for me I think it's it's got to be reducing complexity the complexity of the, the ask because um, I think nine times out of ten you may think something is very simple a bit like Jeffrey alluded to earlier but actually it's not um, so from the pandemic I think that's been one of my key sort of like learning um, from actually implementing a few projects actually on the shop floor during the pandemic was um, I think sometimes no matter how much you can make something maybe a little bit more easier if you haven't got the if you've got the if you've narrowed down the complexity but you haven't narrowed down the the buy-in you haven't got the buy-in and the person hasn't got the benefits from what you're trying to do I think your projects will fail so I think that yeah for me my learning was that you you have to have the complexity so you need to have systems as simple as possible, but then you also need to ensure that the person using the system is getting a benefit. Um, Jeff, if we can go to you next. So I've, I've seen 
some of our projects again you know the usual sort of stuff that comes up um intuitive agility um i think the ones that we've been affected most in reverse which is the ones we really need to have our lessons learned on going forward is our patient experience um because um once patients start complaining that gets to the chief exec far quicker than anything else and we've been running around in circles trying to resolve problems that actually turned out more to be um, cultural issues than technology issues. Uh, and I think we didn't plan enough for those cultural issues. Again, we didn't have a lot of time for some of those things, but that was one of the things that we didn't do enough of. And I think going forward, um, we really need to look at our our own internal transformation teams and change teams and say, you know, culture is going to be a huge step for you going forward. Uh, probably a lot of what we've picked up today, we've picked up elements of culture in everything we've we've said in our, our um, various questions. So I think, yeah, for, for me, a great project or a great transformation will have that culture change embedded and will really work. Thank you. Bye, Gav. Thanks, Ellie. Um, so I think um, a couple of things on reflection. So I think there's, there's something about um, the resistance to change and obviously how do we um, tackle that? And, and obviously in line with what Jeffrey said, it's the, it's the culture piece, you know, that's almost about the benefits realization process. Um, so I think depending on what we're trying to change, I think we need to understand the process, which comes back to process mapping, something I've mentioned earlier, so that you can articulate here's how you can really enable and empower people to use that process in a better way which is about realizing the benefits and then how do you communicate the benefits to the real um sort of users out there if it's on the shop floor if it's the exec you know number of various staff groups and i suppose there'll be different ways of communicating or sharing those benefits in terms of how you socialize them um and obviously then understanding you know, what's the risk around delivery, you know, if it's if it's cost, if it's culture piece, again, um, there could they could be a, a hearts and mind element where again part of the digital workshops we can we can invite people through to say, well, okay, talk us through some of your challenges. Here's how we've dealt with some of your challenges and this is the evidence around it. You know, I think I think that usually um lets people um understand and see how well hang on a second, that's a really good way of putting it. You know, I might use it next time or, you know, can I give you a shout next time when I use it and see if you've come up with any issues, you know? I think it's all about socializing, communicating the right level of changes in a positive limelight. So um, I think that's, that's what I would say. Thank you. Thank you. Raul, do you want to tell us what your answer to that question would be? Just, I wish I had the uh, the, the ultimate uh, answer to that question because I think that would make all of us very very successful. Um, I, I really um, like what what Nikki was saying that if we make if if the change in itself is too complex, then probably we need to break it down. And 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 Jeff, I mean, you, you mentioned agile approach to, to 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 delivering change. It's not about making the uh, um, the change more simple. It's about breaking it down um, into to smaller steps. Um, and we are, we still, I think, particularly so, again, moving from private sector to public, as as as, as a lot of you guys, um, I can see a lot of perceived complexity as a way of demonstrating the um, own value and contribution to 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 the to the problem uh, or to the solution, uh, and, and uh, really sort of 
taking a step back sometimes from uh, what is being solved or delivered or, or implemented is, 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 is quite key. Um, but yeah, you guys mentioned culture, which is such a key thing, because once you've got your stakeholders, your customers of, of whatever the change is on board, then you, you're not really uh, um, uh, pushing against anything. And, and I think the, the sort of kind of taking Jeff's approach of actually flipping the question on, on, on his head, I would say that if the one of the key hallmarks of potentially unsuccessful change is resistance. Uh, as much as sometimes um, uh, people by default are resistant to, to, to change, but understanding why it helps, uh, um, you know, perhaps demonstrate the value and, and, and get, get, get people involved on board. So, yeah, that's the last thought really on it. Yeah, it's a, it's a yeah, million dollar question, I think. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you've all really enjoyed it. I really appreciate you taking the time this evening for, to come on. Thanks, guys.